Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hi, everybody. This is episode 29, and today we're interviewing Steve Dillon from Dillon Music in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Steve Dillon is an instrument salesman in both modern and antique brass instruments, as well as a fife historian and a researcher on all things Arthur Pryor. Yeah, I mean, I can't really say enough good things about uh, Steve and the way they do business over at Dylan Music. You know, there's a free plug for Dylan Music, but <laughs> <laughs> I've bought multiple horns there uh, and gotten horns fixed and cleaned there, uh, and they're great. So we really appreciated him taking the time today to talk to us about uh, you know, his background, some of his research, uh, especially his collecting of 19th century uh, brass instruments and you know, earlier 18th century kind of fifes. So we think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. And as always, if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can support us on Patreon and Teespring. Uh, We have some perks there for Patreon and some merch on our Teespring store, as well as some of Chris's arrangements on our Teespring store. Um, And then you can follow us on all social media platforms. And it would be great if you left a review or a rating, if that's possible, wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps boost the show out. So we would appreciate any help there and i'm just rambling now i don't know is there anything else to say for this intro no it's okay i i like hearing your rambles it's fine (laughs) (laughs) i i oftentimes i'm i'm talking and i'm trying to think of ahead to like where i'm gonna go and then i just end up filling space with ums and uhs and just keep reiterating myself (laughs) i'm terrible with that too but it's okay that's what editing software is for (laughs) exactly we're learning so exactly without further ado here is episode 30 featuring steve dillon Thank you to Steve Dillon so much for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're so thankful to have you on this afternoon. And fun little fact, Stephen and I both actually purchased our euphoniums through Steve Dillon's store. So uh, we are where we are today because of you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be on. And thank you for your patronage of the uh, store. Yeah, of course. Of course, yeah. My dad, we lived on Long Island, as you know, and we would always make the the trek out to New Jersey to, to see you guys. And it was always fun visiting the Toys R Us of brass stores. Right. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> nice. So at the top of each interview, we kind of like to do a little bit of like a, a biography and give a little bit of background of the person that we're talking about. Would you mind uh, talking a little bit about your musical background and kind of what brought you up to... Uh, where we are today with being able to own Dylan music? Sure. Um, I started in the fourth grade on trombone, you know, uh, like most students do. Um, I took up the tuba in junior high school. A side note, uh, in junior high school, the gentleman who sat next to me on trumpet was a gentleman named uh, David Rashbaum. Today, he goes by the name of David Bryant. He is the pianist from Bon Jovi. Oh, well. <laughs> so he was a, a, a standmate, basically, in, in junior high school. And the other one who I, in junior high school, was with was a gentleman who was on uh, David Letterman for many years. He goes by the name of Alan Chez. His real name is Alan Chesnovich. He was a mechanical drawing w- with me in junior high school. He didn't play in the band at that time. Trumpet player. But uh, I went to school at Rutgers University. I graduated with a degree in um, music education and promptly couldn't get a job. So I spent six years in banking. (laughs) Um, From about junior high school uh, uh, on, I always dealt in instruments. I remember my first time doing a trade. I traded an E-flat clarinet and a, a B flat Albert system clarinet for a sousaphone. And I took the sousaphone and traded it for a helicon and another sousaphone. And that, that was in junior high school. Oh, so it's yeah. just grown from then. Um, in college, I partnered with a gentleman named John Corson. John has just retired from a university in Southern Michigan. And John and I uh, started, um, we were dealing in antique instruments because a gentleman at that time by the name of Bob Hazen had gone out of business. So we started dealing with him. John went off to get his doctorate at Illinois, so we kind of split up, and I just started, I just continued on my own and um, grew the business. When I got married in 88, if you came to our townhouse, every corner either had a sousaphone or a tuba in it. The guest <laughs> bathroom had saxophones piled, 
Sunday was packing day. There was peanuts all over the house. Yeah. Uh, and then in 92, I opened up here in Woodbridge. Um, and the reason I'm in Woodbridge is we're um, four hours from uh, DC, four hours from Boston, an hour and 15 from Philly, 45 minutes from uh, New York City. We're right on the train line and there's three major airports right in our vicinity and Newark airport is 15 minutes away. Yeah, wow. So that's uh, how I basically got started. Uh, I've always been a student of uh, history and antique instruments. So it's yeah, kind so of been a perfect fit for me. So the, the idea of dealing in trading and selling instruments began with antique instruments or you were, or was kind of mixed between antique vintage horns and uh, modern produced horns? Well, I started with used horns. And then we got into antique horns when John and I, because that's what Bob Hazen used to do. He used to send out lists. Well, back in the old days, we used to make lists of antique instruments and send them all over the world. And that's what I, I kind of got started, then branched off from there gotcha. when I went on my own. Because, yeah. you know, when we opened up the store, I started not just used instruments and antique, because that's a very limited market. Yeah, definitely. We, we started with new instruments and and. You know, now we're full line, brass and woodwind. Was when you first started with that uh, vintage exchange, kind of when you started building your own collection too, when you kind of saw some cool things come through, did you kind of pick them out for yourself? Or? Well, um, at one point, you see, I've been a collector all my life and um, on various things. So uh, at one point I was collecting trombones my personal collection of trombones numbered at 1.250. And one day I went home and I said, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and I got rid of them all and I started on other things, but you know, the other collection that is, uh, you know, I have, I do have uh, um, various things, you know, uh, uh, from the uh, golden age of bands, we'll call it. I used, mm -hmm. I owned Arthur Pryor's trombone. I still own it, but it's it's been donated to the um, National Music Museum up mm -hmm. in North uh, South Dakota. Hmm. Um, I also uh, owned a collection of uh, 500 historic fifes, military fifes. Yeah, they are yeah, now yeah. also housed up at the museum. Gotcha. Because you know what, we're not going to live forever, and yeah. at the end of the day, it's better to give it to some place that's going to care for it and let people research it than it is to just hold on to it and go, try to go to the grave with it. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. We just had a uh, Sabina Klaus on from the museum uh, a few weeks ago for, for this show and talking to her and talking to other musicians that are collectors all kind of share similar sentiments. They, the idea that they're just temporary curators of the collection kind of is the, the recurring theme that keeps on coming up with that. That's absolute hundred yeah. percent. So what what was the bug that that got the fife uh, interest going? Was that seems a little bit different than uh, the brass trajectory of of the other things? <laughs> well, I did some family research about 10, 15 years ago, and come to find out, my family is very well documented. The Dillons, mm -hmm. matter of fact, I'm the first in eleven generations from father to son born out of the old Commonwealth of Virginia. Wow. Um, meaning uh, encompassing West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Now, um, my third great granduncle was a fifer. He, he fiped in the Civil War and in the Mexican War. And my sixth great grandfather was a fifer with the 2nd Virginia Regiment during the uh, revolution. So I got interested in that. Then I got interested in reenacting for a, a brief time. And then when I started that, I started to find out that in the fife world, it's very, believe it or not, until I came along, nobody really even knew what a Revolutionary War fight looked like. They said they did, but then when I did research, I find that most collections, what they have are 19th century items. So I started a massive collection, little by little. Matter of fact, one of my fights, one of the first ones I've got, I was, um, purchased is made by Thomas Cusack, who was in business from around 1738 to around around 1798, an English maker. And it's on display at the New Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. Hmm. During this time, I collected, uh, I, uh, my collection numbers, like I mentioned, about 500. But I have about 15 
actual instruments from the time of the revolution. And the museum now has those instruments. And it's the only museum in this country that can document that they have instruments from the time of the revolution. But then I expanded, of course, to Civil War instruments. And I just became interested in it. Yeah, yeah I became really an authority on the fight. I'll tell you what, it doesn't get you a date on Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> How were you able to date those those fights to that time period? I, I doubt they were stamped in any way, right? Was it just out of the construction? Yes, they were the stamped. A oh. lot of them. If they, The only way you can truthfully uh, date an instrument is at least a fight because it's so basic. And they haven't changed the way really that they're, the design in a couple of hundred years, you have to go by the maker. Now I have an eye now that I can look at a fife and I can basically give a date range, mm -hmm. but you have to look for the maker. Now the, the 15 I talk about are actual instruments that are stamped by makers. Oh, well, very cool. Then it, then it expanded. Like um, I was very interested in the Boston makers. You know, our country was making instruments fairly early on. And it's a surprise to a lot. I remember one day uh, I was with Gerhard Meinl of Meinl Wesson. And he said to me, he says, I've got to go to a, a, an event in Martinkirchen next week. I said, what's the event? He says, well, it's, it's the uh, uh, anniversary of the first brass maker uh, starting to make in Martinkirchen. I said, well, what year is that? He says, 1765. I said, really? We had a, a French horn maker in New York in 1765 named Thomas Dash. Oh. He says, I can't believe that. And a lot of people don't realize we did have a, a large manufacturing here in the country. The key is they didn't just do that. That French horn maker also was a tinsmith. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There you go. Because we didn't have a clientele just to be able to support making one thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right. Kind of a, a niche market at the time, especially. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Very cool. When you were doing the, the reenacting, did you go in as a... Pfeiffer, or were you kind of in there as infantry and then you gravitated towards the music side after you were in already? I went in as a Pfeiffer with the matter of fact, there's a, a regiment called the Second Virginia Regiment. That's what my ancestor served in, and that's what I was a Pfeiffer of. That's very cool. I was a Pfeiffer of the Second Virginia. Now, there's a reason that I also did that because when you're an infantry person, you have to carry a musket, and that means you got to clean the musket. I didn't have to clean anything. I just carried my pipe. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. That's like uh, when kids in middle school pick their instruments and they, they're upset that they picked the tuba and they got to lug that thing around. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Pick the lightest instrument. On the bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's why those things get banged up so much because they're always just <laughs> knocking them into the, the side of the bus and stuff. Right. <laughs> Oh, and that's funny. Did you ever uh, venture into the, the world of Civil War reenacting, or did you stay purely in the 18th century? I, I, I stayed mainly in the 18th century. Um, Civil, uh, I was interested more in that at, at the beginnings. And it's very interesting, the, the group I was with, the 2nd Virginia, uh, a lot of it was made up of uh, people from Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, cool. Uh, very hardcore reenactors and very hardcore um, uh, historians. I mean, everything that they researched, everything to the nth degree, which I was very interested in. That's why I fell in with them and I felt comfortable. They knew, hey, you need, need anything to know about fights? Call Steve. He'll know everything you ever wanted to know about. It. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I, I, My wife recently came into possession of two fights and I was asking people about it. And they're like, oh, talk to Steve Dillon. So I had sent <laughs> you a, a message of, of two pictures of those. And yeah, you were very helpful. Thank you. <laughs> You know, I, I put out a website, uh, fifemuseum.com, and it's just a labor of love. I mean, I haven't worked on it in, in uh, quite a while now, but it's to, you know, in the fife world, it's funny how much um, misinformation there is out there. And I wanted to dispel a lot of that. And that's what I've done. And again, it all, there's a lot of um, correlation with the brass world because, you know, just because you were a woodwind maker, that doesn't mean you didn't um, interact with brass makers or were a brass maker. I mean, Samuel hmm. Graves started out as a woodwind maker. Then he was making brass instruments. Yeah, very true. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, Sibley, Henry Sibley up in Boston, who made the key bugles for uh, Ned Kendall, he was also partners with Walter Crosby, the, the fife and the woodwind maker. So, you know, there was always a they didn't just make one thing a lot of times. Yeah, so I, I, in researching fights, 
I also found out a lot about brass makers. Yeah, that's convenient. <laughs> and kind of what we were saying before, diversifying, I'm sure, helps with sales for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it makes total sense from a business perspective to... Well, that's the other side of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. You talked a little bit how you kind of got involved in collecting brass instruments from early on, uh, you know, your early days in middle school. But I was wondering... Um, Maybe we can start with, um, you know, since you own Dylan Music and have a great repair shop there too, do you have, maybe this can be a way to get into your personal collection, but do you have a favorite or a highlight, you know, of an instrument that either came to you somehow or came through the shop for repair? The most, my most prized instrument was Arthur Pryor's trombone. Mm -hmm. And how that um, came to me was I had... Well, I ought to give you a little background on um, how I got really got interested in uh, the history of American bands. When I was in high school, probably a, um, a sophomore, they, I went to the library and there was a book. It was called um, Bands of America by Swartz. Mm-hmm. And it, and mm-hmm. it's no longer in publication. It, if you can find it on eBay, you usually can get it for very reasonably. It's a great book to pick up. Schwartz was, um, I think he was an amateur historian, but the nice thing about Schwartz was he worked for the Con Corporation. Mm-hmm. And he got to interview a lot of people who had, you know, been around at that time. The book was written in, I believe, the 50s. But he knew people. He knew Arthur Pryor. He knew John Philip Sousa. He knew all these guys. So he got a lot of a lot of his stuff, even though it's not footnoted, is very, very accurate. He talks about um, uh, Jules Levy. He talks about Ned Kendall. He talks about all that stuff. Yeah. And it, that's what really sparked my interest. And then I started. Um, I started to research at that time who these people were. Herbert L. Clark. I remember the Trumpet Guild had just come out with the record, and I brought it. I bought it, and I brought it home, and and listened to it. And was mesmerized. Clark playing, you know, Carnival of Venice and stuff. And then they came out later on with the Arthur Pryor one that was done by a good friend of mine at that time, Fred Williams. He was a record collector in Philadelphia. So um, I got really interested in, in in these guys, and I got really interested in Arthur Pryor. And, you know, Pryor lived in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and his band played there for many years. And that really started to push me. Now, mm-hmm. again, I started researching Pryor quite early on, probably probably in my uh, early college years, started researching, doing interviews with band members. Hmm. Um, I'd go to Rutgers Library at the time and look through the Asbury Park Press and pull out stuff and uh, I interviewed his granddaughter. So I was really interested in it. And then one day I got a letter in the mail and see, everybody knew just like with Fife's. Hey, I want to talk about practical Steve. <laughs> so I get a letter in the mail and a guy writes me a letter. He says, listen, I have this trombone and everybody said I could call, should call you. It's engraved on the bell made for Arthur Pryor by Jake Burkle, 1894. Yeah. Of course, my hand started shaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got on the phone and that was about 28, 29 years ago. And I purchased the instrument off the gentleman. Mm-hmm. And it had been the instrument at that time that I had been looking for. I wondered what had happened to Pryor's trombone. Of course, he had many of them, I would think, over his career. Mm-hmm. But there's an article in uh, the Asbury Park Press from the late 30s. And it and it says, uh, Mr. Pryor's uh prized trombone sits on his mantle engraved made for Arthur Pryor by Jake Burkle 1894 so for whatever reason he kept this instrument and I have numerous pictures of him with it over his years I even have a picture of him and Jake Burkle and their latter years standing there with the horn and Burkle's actually pointing to it yikes yeah that's really cool. Did those pictures come with the horn when you bought no. it? Or did you find them after the fact? Find them after the fact. Mm. So it came, his horn and his mouthpiece. Now, prior, you got to realize, prior changed the way the trombone was written for and played when he went on the scene worldwide. Oh, yeah. When he went to Europe, the, the trombonists in Europe were really pissed off at him. They said, you know what? Now they're going to think we can play like you. And they're going to start <laughs> writing. And they did. The, the composers would say, well, why can't you play like him? 
<laughs> basically a euphonium part now, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you basically. know, and it really pushed the trombone forward. Um, he was a very interesting person. So that's what started all that. And that was probably the most, the instrument that I was most, um, that was my, uh, the instrument that I, is dearest to me. Are any of those pictures of him playing it in concert, or is it possible that that horn was maybe just a display horn on the mantle for him? No. Um, the instrument, he used it so much he wore through the slide. Nope, there you go. <laughs> and they replaced it for him in 34. Now, there are pictures of him with different horns over the years, but a couple of the pictures. And the funny thing about Pryor is there's very, very few pictures of him playing. Hmm. Actually huh. playing. And it's, it's funny awesome. because... In his day, he was, and he probably still is today, the most recorded trombonist, uh, main, basically solo trombonist in history. He has over 225 solo recordings. Yeah, well. A lot of them are not, these are not, most of them are not his technical solos. Most of them are popular songs of the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a recording like his Odrado's Tears sold in excess of, almost a, a quarter of a million copies back in the 20s. Wow. wow. But there's no very few pictures of him playing, but I have pictures of him holding the horn at different times in his career. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow, very cool. Do you know the the history of that horn after Pryor was done? <laughs> well, that's a nice way of saying it. After Pryor died, <laughs> do you know, do you know the, passed, the path of that the horn? The instrument went to his son, Roger who was a movie star. A lot of people don't realize Roger Pryor was, they used to call him the poor man's, um, uh, Cary Grant, the poor man's Cary Grant. Hmm. Um, it went to his son and then his son, somehow it got sent up to this fella in um, Indiana. No. So that's the only thing I know. But it went to his son after that. I even have it in the will that the, uh, the son, because he was a trombone player, Roger, and it went, it went to him. Uh, uh, Arthur had two sons, Arthur Jr. and Roger. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome that you were able to stitch together the uh, the prominence of that instrument and, and get all the documentation. You know, it's pretty indisputable at this point what you have. Well, which, which the is engraving awesome. on it alone, you right. know, made for Arthur Pryor. Although I've seen one trombone over the years that somebody faked it on it. Mm -hmm. I was at a brass conference and and this other dealer said, well, "We have one of Pryor's trombones." I said, "Really? Let me take a look at it." And it was engraved in such a way. And I said, wait a minute. It says, it said as made for Arthur Pryor. Well, they spelled made M A I D. <laughs> I said, well, that's not how you spell made. I've never seen the horn again. It disappeared. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's oh, man. That's but I have had, um, over the years, I've sold many collections. Uh, back about 20 some odd years ago, I sold the Benkovic collection. Uh, Fred Benkovic had collected one of the, and had in his possession at that time, one of the largest collection of 19th century brass, in American brass instruments held in private hands. Yeah. And he got a hold of me and I, he want, when he was finally saying, listen, I'm done collecting. I want to get rid of it. I want you to sell my collection. Some of the pieces were just phenomenal. A lot went into the Utley collection that the museum owns mm -hmm. um the, the 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 one there that was probably the most uh amazing instrument was the um high b-flat key bugle made a tortoise shell and you could take it and hold it up to the light and the and the sun would flow, uh shine through it it was gorgeous it was made by a, a connecticut maker uh the only other one that exists is in the smithsonian that's in pieces yeah, yikes. Is, wow. was, that a, was that a novelty or like? No, it, he was like, trying to make <laughs> instruments out of uh, uh, tortoiseshells. Wow, that's very strange. <laughs> did you did you hear it? Did it was it playable? Oh yeah, it was playable. Yeah, I don't remember what it played. I think um, I think Steve Sharpie played it. Okay. Um, I'm yeah. not sure. Joe allowed people to play a lot of his instruments, um, and he was a great guy. You know, I talk about collectors. Joe Utley was one of the top top yeah. in the world that i know yeah, yeah yeah that's awesome when when you were facilitating that that transition of uh that previous collection you were talking about before it went to utley did it did it go as a a full collection basically to the utley collection or was it kind of pieces 
No, uh, Joe brought, at that time, he bought about seven or eight. The, the collection was quite large, but see, Fred Benkovic used to, um, what he did, he was very uh, big into uh, over-the-shoulders and Civil War stuff, a lot of it. And so he would have multiples. And the one thing Joe Utley, Joe Utley, the, more, the odder it was, the better Joe liked it. <laughs> if it was very odd, he wanted it for his collection. So there was only certain things that were very, uh, that fit into Joe's collection. The rest of it went to people all over the country. Um, Alex Pollock bought some of it. Uh, he's a collector in Michigan. Hmm. Um, I, I don't remember exactly, like I said, it's so many years ago, but the yeah. collection uh, was, uh, most of the rest was dispersed. A lot of times when people are asking about brass band instrumentations and are asking just the general questions of the highest instruments and the lowest instruments. Uh, you know, we say that in the 19th century, you know, it traditionally went down to low E flat bass, but then obviously with modern tubas, we know that there's uh, the double B flat bass and people were saying that that's the lowest it goes. But we know through uh, some well-documented social media posts that Dylan Music did, you guys recently had a a much lower tuba come through the shop recently. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, that project? Overall? Yeah, the Harvard tuba, as we, yeah. we call it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Harvard tuba, um, we, we went, we, I got contacted by Carl Fisher Music in New York, and they wanted me to come up and wanted us both, Matthew and I, to come up and look at their big tuba that they have there. They call, we, we dubbed it Big Carl. <laughs> All right. And what they have is a, a monster instrument. It, but um, the valves are, uh, are fake. It's basically a bugle. Oh, the okay. valves are fake. Mm, on the, gotcha. the one at Carl Fisher. Well, by us going up there uh, and, and doing some work on that and helping them with that, I was contacted by Harvard University about their instrument, which we knew about for many years. So we went up and looked at it a couple of times. The instrument was made um, uh, by Besson Company. And not much was known about it at that time. I mean, we looked at it, it had sustained tremendous amount of damage. We, um, we talked to them about it and we finally, they put it out for bid and they finally came back to us and they said, we want you to do the work. And the funny thing was this, they said, they originally called us and they said, we want you to do the work. And I said, uh, okay. They said, but we have a, uh, we have a um, stipulation. I said, yes, what is it? We don't want the patina touched. Hmm. I said, well, we can't do the work. Yeah, yeah. I said, we, you got to understand, in order for us to restore this, we have to take it apart. In order to resolder parts, we have to polish them. In order to polish them, you're going to take off some of the patina. If you want me not to t- touch it, I said, if we do it like that, the entire instrument's going to look like some big leopard. And I don't want that that uh, associated with my name. They said, well, then it's off. So I was up at the museum. I'm, 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 I'm on the board of trustees of the museum, the uh, National Music Museum. I'm up there for a board meeting. And one of the other board members, Marlo Siegel, comes over to me and he says, now Marlo is uh, um, an alumni of Harvard. And, it, and he was very involved in the highest past since uh, involved in the Harvard uh, bands, uh, alumni bands. So he comes over to me, he says, well, when are you gonna get uh, to work on that tuba? Now, a backstory, I knew he was the one behind, don't touch the patina. Okay. And I said to him, well, Marlo, we can't do it. And I explained why. And he just smiled and there was nothing else. Next thing I knew, I get a phone call, come get the tuba. Now we were not the lowest bid, we were not the highest bid, but they said we knew you would take care of it. Now, a backstory on the instrument. The Harvard tuba was made for the 1889 Paris Exposition. And now you can find out a lot about this on Dave Dittweiler's page. I don't know if you know Dave. They call him the tuba pastor. He's a <laughs> minister. But he also has a passion for tubas. <laughs> Done some very, very good research. And what we found out is the Harvard tuba was made for the 1889 Paris Exposition. It was made, it did not sit in the instrument hall. They had a special building for it. Um, 
at that after the exposition, Carl Fisher purchased it. Hmm. He brought it over here. It, it stood in Carl Fisher's window until 1912 when they had that bigger, when they had Big Carl made. Big Carl was made by Bolin and Fuchs, where uh, that one was made by Besson. Then it went up to um, Boston and sat in the Carl Fisher store in Boston in the window. And Harvard used to rent it for football games. <laughs> so one year they went to rent it. This was in the 40s. They went in. They 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 went out. They were they they took the tube to the football game. They came and then on Monday morning they looked at the receipt and they said, "Hey, wait a minute, this isn't a rental receipt. This is a sales receipt." Went back to Fisher and said, "Hey, this is a sales receipt." They said, "I hey, keep it." Nope. So it stayed at Harvard wow. until we got it and we brought it down and we did a tremendous amount. You can find some videos and stuff on the internet of some stuff we've done. It, it was a it was a large project. It took most of my shop to do, but it we were very pleased on how it came out. Came out. It does play. Yeah, yeah. It's not a joy to play. <laughs> Matter of fact, Mike Roylance from the Boston Symphony actually played it at a Harvard uh, University band's um, anniversary just uh, last year, I believe. You can probably mm. find that online too. Sam Palafian, um, the late great tubist, he also played it. You can probably find some stuff on that too. It is not, we made a special mouthpiece adapter for it and everything. Mm. It's not a joy to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, once you guys finished the restoration, I think you posted a video of uh, Derek Fenstermacher yeah. playing it also. Yeah, Derek, yeah. Derek uh, got some good notes out of it. it <laughs> it's It was a novelty. They did not make it to uh, be used, but it was used. I mean, there is one poster. Matter of fact, there's a poster of the Gilmore Band. Oh, yeah. And you see the big Besson up top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, whether Gilmore used it, there's there's evidence that he might have tried to but never actually used it. We don't know. Yeah, like he liked the look of it in that picture. Well, Gilmore was always a bigger, better, more, you know. Yeah. And there's a possibility, but they probably found out it's 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 great for a few notes, and that's about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of like uh in the first Fantasia movie when they're showing all the silhouettes of all the instruments and they show a sousaphone, but they didn't get, they didn't use a sousaphone in that recording. They just used no. it for the, the silhouette looked nice. So. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I get, we didn't actually specify. So I guess that, that Harvard tuba is actually an octave below double B flat, right? That's a, yeah, it's a triple, no, it's a triple B flat. Yeah. 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 The big Carl, that was a B triple flat. B flat. Bugle, Same thing. I, guess, I guess we could call, yeah, <laughs> B-flat. Yeah, maybe. it's but it, it is a triple B-flat. The interesting thing, uh, Dave Dittwaller found, and see, there was, again, I go back to that Bands of America book. Schwartz talks about two giant tubas being made in the 19th century, one for Brooks' band and the other for Innes' band. Come to find out that they were not that giant of an instrument like these. Mm -hmm. We always thought that these were part of that tubas made because he doesn't say Khan made them. What happened was when uh, this one was made by Besson in 1889, in 1912, Carl Fisher took delivery of two giant tubas, the one big Carl, which you can find online uh, uh, videos of. Uh, the New York Times did a, you just have to Google New York Times giant tuba and there'll be a, um, There'll be a small piece on Big Carl. Matter of fact, Derek Finchmacher is playing it. <laughs> um, Carl Fisher ordered from Bolin and Fuchs two giant tubas, one that went to their New York store, Big Carl, and one that went to their Chicago store. Now, Dave Dittwaller found out that the Chicago store of Carl Fisher was purchased, uh, uh, the band instrument department was purchased by Kahn in the late 30s. And... Uh, he found a newspaper article about uh, Big Carl's brother being destroyed for the scrap drives of World War II. There's a fellow from the con factory. They have a they have the uh, the other big tuba there. They painted a picture of Hitler's face on it, and he takes a sledgehammer and destroys it, and they put it in the melting pot. Yeah, so, <laughs> that, so that's interesting because I know we've had other interviews where we've mentioned that happening brass instruments becoming shell casings kind of thing and i think in the past we've said that we've heard the story but haven't seen actual documentation of it happening so it has happened 
there it is. <laughs> Con had an uh, Con had an advertisement showing a, 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 a tuba and how many shells and everything it would make to bomb the Germans. Wow. There you go. But they they destroyed this. That um, you can you can find pictures of it on Dave Dittweiler's site. They destroyed this instrument to help with the war effort. And um, originally we we looked at it and I said no, that's an ex uh, we thought it might have been a con. No, it was a Carl Fisher. And how did it get to the con factory? How it got to the con factory is because they bought the band instrument um, store of Carl Fisher and they probably pulled it down there and just put it up in the rafters. We have here at the shop, I have in the display cases, a couple very rare instruments, extremely rare, one of a kind, some of them. Outside of the Ford Museum in, in uh, Michigan, I am the only place that has uh, two box valve instruments made by the Quinby brothers up in Boston. I've got a box valve cornet and a box valve, um, valve trombone. Box valve is, is a valve that actually goes like, it, it's the valves are in like a box and it slides. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other instruments that I have, I have um, two instruments that were made for the Gilmore band. They're called uh, Orpheans. I've got a, a one made in E flat and one made in B flat. And basically they wind around and come on there. I can send you pictures of them if you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're very rare too. Um, other rare instruments. I also have a double bell. Well, you guys are euphoniumists. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a, a two bell. Matter of fact, on my Facebook, um, I, it's in my profile picture. I have this two bell thing, we'll call it. It's basically the small bell of a double bell euphonium done twice. All right. So it's a three valve, a four valve instrument, but the fourth valve being the changeover bell. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, why they were made, you know, the double bell euphonium, you got the, uh, the uh, sound of the big bell, and then you switch to what they used to call the trombone bell. Mm -hmm. All right, gives you total different sound quality. This is the, both the same. Now, I got this, a, a young person come in and, and uh, one uh, Christmas time, and I normally don't work at Christmas, but I came in to do something, walk through the door, and I see this young lady playing this thing. What the hell is it? What? Oh my God. So I got the story for them <clears throat> from them. They picked it up a yard sale in New York area. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's gold plated and it's just engraved CG con, nothing on it, but CG con. And it mystified me, but I, you know, over my years, I've talked to a lot of people and I've interviewed a lot of people or, you know, been friends with a lot of people. And a memory came back to me of um, Alan Ostrander. Alan Ostrander was the uh, bass trombonist of the New York Philharmonic back in the 40s. He was in that famous Gordon Pulis, Bill Bell, you know, section, know. Van Haney section. <laughs> yeah. I used to call him up and bug him when I was a young kid and ask him questions. And see, uh, Ostrander had studied with both um, Gardell Simons from the, uh, who was principal trombone, the Sousa band and principal trombone of the Philadelphia Orchestra. He studied with him and he studied with Simone Mantia. Hmm. Matter of fact, he credited Simone, credited Simone Mantia with helping him get his career going. Nice. And um, as a side note, I once asked him a question. I said, listen, you studied with both and, and you got to re realize this was probably in the late seventies, early eighties. So he knew all the new players and everything. I said, listen, you studied with both Gardell Simons and Simone Mantia. Could you tell me a little bit about their playing? And he said, well, Mr. Simons was content to play long tones all day. Now, a little known fact is Remington, you know, the Remington studies, mm -hmm. Remington was a student of Simons. That's where he got a lot of his stuff from Gardell Simons. There you go. I said, well, what about Mantia? He goes, well, Mr. Mantia. And he always called them Mr. Simons and Mr. Mantia. Mm -hmm. He said, I said, what was his playing like? He said, to this day, 
when I think of his playing, my hair stands on end. Wow. He said, I never heard anybody before or since been able to play things on a trombone like he could. Mm. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, take somebody of today. And he thought, he says, you know the technique of a Bill Watrous? I says, yes. He says, take that farther. Now give him great power. He said, Mr. Mantia had a big, full tone. I said, well, did you ever hear Arthur Pryor? He said, no. He said, I never heard Arthur Pryor play in, 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 um, uh, you know, in person. He says, but everybody in those days said, Prior was or Mantia was second only to Prior, and he says I knew what Mantia was. He says I dare to think what Prior was. Yeah, well. Now yeah. getting back to that double belt thing, I I when talking to Ostrander, I I asked him questions. He says, well, um, when Mister Mantia died, he says I went down to his house to buy some instruments for some of my students. He says Mrs. Mantia was selling them. And he, I said, well, what, what was his double bell? And all he goes, uh, he says, well, there was a couple things there. He says, I bought basically a couple of trombones. Believe it or not, one of his trombones that he bought went to one of the Biddlecombe brothers. And then I got it many years later. And then it went to uh, one day, I put it up for sale. I said, I can't keep everything. Put it up for sale. It was a gold-plated con that was made for Mantia in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a phone call. Oh, on a Saturday, one of my salesmen calls me and is frantic. There's a guy, crazy, crazy. He needs to talk to you. His name is Joe Mantia. He's Simone Mantia's great uh, grandnephew. Oh, wow. He bo- and wow. he's a trombone player, bought the instrument. So I was happy to see it go home. Yeah, but yeah. Um, Ostrander said he bought a couple of trombones and he said, then there was this thing. He said that had two bells. I said, oh, you mean the double bell geophonium? He goes, no. It wound around and attached just two small bells. And I said, well, what was it? He goes, I don't know. He said, but Mrs. Mantia said Simone would uh, take it and he'd practice on it and walk up and down the stairs of the house while playing on it. And I'm not saying it's 100%, but I, I suspect that this instrument that I have here was owned by Mantia. Uh, and the reason I say that is Mantia wasn't a big believer in all kinds of engraving on his horns. He hated it. Mm-hmm. I, I knew one of the guys who had one of his double bells, and he, uh, he said the double bell was very plain. No make it ladies, no and all this. It's a very plain instrument, CG con, and that's what this is. And gold plated, just like Mantia's horns would have been. Mm-hmm. So it's a possibility this was made from, from uh, Simone Mantia. So it's like a, a double bell trombone kind of thing, valve trombone. It's like the small, but be- yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I couldn't understand why you would have two bells of the same sound, but you can put a mute in one. You can yeah. you can actually turn the bells to face anyway. Yeah. But I don't know, but it, it, I, I suspect that it was made for Mantia to be a practice instrument. Yeah. Interesting. How did it sound? Or how does it sound when you it play? It sounds like a small bell of a double bell euphonium. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's strange. We'll be sure Just to... the uh... least appealing bell of a double bell euphonium. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sure to include a, a picture of that, if you don't mind, in our in our show notes of this episode. I think that, that'd be cool for people to see, for sure. Yeah, I have your, your uh, Facebook profile picture pulled up. I wonder... You said you can turn the bells in any direction. I wonder if it was like a... Yeah. March, marching band thing you turn one bell to one side of the street the other bell to the other side i don't know and, just... and like i said mantia was known to um i interviewed a guy who, who had studied with i interviewed a couple guys who studied with mantia um but one of them was frank bryan who was very good friends with mantia frank bryan basically ran the asbury park uh, municipal band after prior died until i don't know almost the 90s um, he was very good friends with Mantia, and he said uh, Mantia would practice most of the day. He says, I would hear him on Wanamassa Lake. He owned a house down in Wanamassa Lake. In the mornings in the summer, Mantia would open his windows, start his practice, and you could hear him going up and down the stairs, walking <laughs> up and down the stairs. He said he'd break for his dinner, and then he'd go play his night concert. Yikes. He was yeah. an amazing, an amazing player. Yeah, that's incredible. That's That reminds me of like a 
when my dad would tell a story of times that he uh, played in an orchestra that accompanied Doc Severinsen. Mm-hmm. He said that they would be, you know, on the stage doing their warm-ups and they would hear Doc, like, uh, either backstage or underground practicing. And oh. then he'd come out, do sound check with the orchestra, go back down, keep practicing, then play the concert. Go down, keep practicing like he was like playing nonstop. <laughs> well, they know. See, that's that's one thing Frank Bryan said to me. I says, "Why did he practice so much?" He goes, "Well, Mr. Mantia knew as he got older, in order to keep up with the younger generation, he had to be he had to practice more than he did when he was younger." Mm-hmm. And and it made sense if he had Khan make him up this thing. You know, it's it's much heavier carrying the double bell euphonium. And the trombone, you can't walk up and down stairs with the slide. So it's yeah. quite possible he had an early practice yeah. euphonium that he could go up and down and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's incredible. That's a good story. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of tying into this, uh, this theme of our discussion of vintage brass instruments and stuff, do you... Oh, let's kind of tie it into maybe modern reproductions can maybe be a part of this also. Do you see any uh, way forward or any need for either education or performing vintage brass instruments to kind of be accessible to either students or performers? I do, because I always say, you know, a lot of times people don't understand what um, those who came before had to do or had to, you know, um, go through with certain things with, you know, and especially with instruments. I mean, you know, cornets or trombone, especially with, let's say trombones. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a good example. I did a project with Joe Alessi, principal trombone of the New York Philharmonic. I don't think I had to say that, but I said <laughs> Who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We did a, 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 a basically a, a honoring prior, and um, it's, a, it's a CD called Slide Partners, all right? And one of the things we did was uh, we actually did a reverse Natalie Cole. Natalie Cole took her father and brought her up into the uh, 20th century and, and, and did a duet with him. Hmm. You know that thing? We took Joe and we threw him back 100 years ago on Pryor's trombone. Nice. And had him um, do a duet. We actually got a guy in uh, Long Island named Peter Dilge, his name was. He had an Edison studio mu- machine that was actually in the Edison studios. And we, Joe had, uh, we went to his house. And Joe, you can find some of those pictures on my Facebook too. Joe went to his house, you know, had uh, the recording of Prior in his ear. And then he played the duet part. We had a guy from the army band, James Cassick do the uh, uh, duet part for us, uh, uh, write it. And Joe Joe got to find out what it was to play on an instrument. Now, prior slide, even though it was redone in the 30s, is still not a great slide. Mm-hmm. And you, you, Joe became very um, appreciated of, first off, when he had to deal with the recording, how it, it you know, how, uh, what it did to your sound, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's a, uh, there, I think it's still out there. I, I don't think, I think the beginning one is out there where Joe is doing a test of cylinder. And when I do, um, when I do some um, lectures on Arthur Pryor, I, I, we, I talk about his sound quality. And I, I actually uh, show the other side of this uh, uh, cylinder test we did with Joe. Joe does, he's playing Deary. Big, beautiful sound as he normally has. He's on Cryer's trombone, but big, beautiful sound. Then the then the recording comes back, and we play the cylinder back, and he got, and he actually says, "That's me." Huh. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Was when we listen back to recordings, like like uh, listen to old recordings of Mantia or something, and we we think that it might sound fartsy and super old kind of thing. You know, it's it's not. No. Necessar- necessarily the tone quality of the day that they were going for. It's just 
affected by the recording technology. Well, that's yeah. absolute. That's absolute. And it, and if and if you get the the uh, slide partners, this we did uh, two um, Deary and uh, Odry those tiers where you don't know by splicing them in, you don't know if Pryor's playing the. Uh, although you know because of his his uh, very fast vibrato, you don't know who's playing what. It sounds like they recorded it both a hundred years ago. Yeah, because is. that's what it did to Joe's sound. But the same thing with the slide. Joe goes, oh, how did Pryor do it? Hmm. I said, well, they, when you're brought up on something and you don't know anything more, you make it work. Yeah, that's true. So they, all of those guys thought differently back then. Give an example with Pryor. I said, listen, how did he do it? We think vertical. B flat, F, B flat, D, F, B flat. Prior thought horizontal. Hmm. He said, I'll get any note in any position I want to get it. <laughs> now, he understood that you wouldn't lay on a note in a, a false position, but hmm. he knew that he didn't have to go down to seven. He can lip it down, hmm. especially in a passing thing. He could, he, his, they actually hearkened back to the earlier hand horn style where they would bend things yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and that's why getting back to your question that's why it's, it's interesting for people to be able to play instruments and understand hey this is the the what they were up against i have new respect for them because you know at the end of the day we stand on the shoulders of those who came before yeah and if you understand what they were up against Pryor was playing on a slide. He was playing on a brass slide with two nickel stockings that you put oil on. Mm -hmm. How did he play so quickly? Yeah. Yeah. What What's the deterioration like? Like Stephen and I are more familiar with valved brass instruments from the, the 19th century and stuff. And we're kind of familiar with how those can be maintained. But from the same time period and earlier for trombones, what what's the deterioration like? And is it possible that that hand slide on Pryor's felt a lot nicer a while ago or no they probably especially his original <laughs> slides matter of fact there's stories about when he first picked up the slide trombone he thought there was only three uh uh positions and you say <laughs> how could you be so ignorant to think that he came out of a cornet three valves on the cornet must be three positions and yeah. it, he practiced for six months until somebody said you know there are seven positions and you're supposed to put oil on the slide Oh well. <laughs> when uh... it reminds me of the story that uh, Mark Jenkins told us, Chris. I don't, I don't know if you're there as a studio class or whatnot, but someone took a lesson with either Simone Mantia or Art Lehman, and they like didn't know how to oil their valves. Like, that was Mantia. That was Mantia. Mantia yeah. okay. actually didn't know how to oil, and Lehman told me that directly. Yeah. He hmm. said, like, he said, I was in a lesson. He used to go up to New York. Mantia had an apartment there. And he would take lessons. It was interesting. Art Lehman. Uh, um, oh, but Art actually gave. It's interesting you say that because it goes back to what I was just saying about horizontal. One of my ex-employees uh, went down and took lessons off Art Lehman. And Art said, he, he, he said, turn around. He says, I'm going to play a, a B flat scale. I want to know the fingerings. So he plays a B flat scale. He goes, all right, turn around. What's the fingerings? He goes, well, you know, no, without moving the things. He says, you can do it. I've seen Stephen Mead do it. And, but Layman told me he went up to, he went up to take a couple lessons off Mantia and Mantia was having trouble with his smile. And he said, Mr. Uh, Mr. Layman, could you help me? I, my valve isn't working. So he says, I unscrewed it. I took it out, wiped it off, put some oil on it. I said, here he goes, thank you so much. Mantia actually had a repairman that he would just take his horn to. He didn't, he didn't know. He knew how to play. He didn't know anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So you feel like that they would like that they would go hand in hand. Like, I feel like I know my instrument well because of the time i've spent with it and you know and knowing how it functions helps inform how to play it also so that's interesting that he was able to master it by having that minimal amount of knowledge for the mechanics it's and he never used it it's bizarre i i know it's bizarre it was very interesting mantia was a very interesting man very um very underrated 
but he uh, very, very great musician. And um, but I know Lehman said he was an absolutely horrible teacher. He <laughs> said um, he didn't know how he did things. He says, I remember I was practicing on this. I was I was um, practicing one of his solos and it, and it comes there's one run in it, 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 it or a cadenza that's a little long. And he says, I couldn't I didn't have enough breath. And he says, Mantia was an old man. And you know how sometimes when they get older, the, the clothes kind of hang off them. Mm. He said, so here he is with this big baggy suit on. And he says, well, well, I don't have a problem with it. And he took a breath in and his clothes actually got his chest expanses. He said was so great. The clothes got tight oh. and he was able to, but he couldn't tell you how to do that. He also said, I remember asking him, Mr. Mantia, I, I don't know how to get this high note. And he said, Mantia just said, I don't know, blow down in the mouthpiece. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's a lot that. of people don't realize, too, a lot of people, jazz artists went and studied, and classical went and studied with Mantia. I had a uh, um, customer once tell me he had studied with Mantia. He says, I got out of my lesson, and Tommy Dorsey is waiting to go in for his lesson. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. That's funny. But when you've been uh, playing vintage brass instruments yourself and stuff have you ever had success with playing on modern mouthpieces or have you always attached period mouthpieces to to horns most of the time um it a period mouthpiece needs to be used and the reason is the modern mouthpieces a lot of them not all of them tend to be not uh, a good fit i used to send to saxton's cornet band down in kentucky this was years ago. They used to call me when they'd get a new instrument. They say, "Hey, we got a new cornet. Can you send down a bunch of old mouthpieces?" <laughs> because you know what happened <clears throat> back in the day, especially with the smaller makers like Graves and E.G. Wright and all them, they made horn mouthpieces to fit their horns. Yeah. And if you don't you don't have the correct fit, the intonation just is totally out there. Plus, you need that, especially with the older brass instruments, it has to be that B cup. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of them are using that B cup, and it makes it makes a big difference. And it really does because, you know, the they're totally different instruments. You think they're the same, but they're not. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. You know, if you think about marching bands today, it's a totally different thing. You go back a hundred years ago, or a little bit more than a hundred years ago, you, you you read some of Herbert Clark's. Not how I became a cornetist. He has a second book called um, uh, "The Road to Success." And musicians in those days made livings. You know, a gig was a marching gig. You know, you yeah, got paid yeah. a regular wage, like like a theater gig. So it was it was a viable thing at that times. Nowadays, they look down upon it. The yeah. other thing is with marching bands, they always thought the Susan Band was a marching band. The Susan Band, in its in its uh, from eighteen ninety two to nineteen thirty two, when Susa died, only marched seven times. Yeah, yeah. So they were not a marching band; they were a concert band. Something that I thought was interesting, you know, if, if we're just going to talk about marching for a second, that in one of the books that I was reading, an interesting connection that they made was that how in the 19th century you have, you know, the American brass band tradition kind of developing parallel, but separately from the British brass band tradition, but how the brass band tradition, as we know, was uh, reliant uh heavily on competition or is now, you know, reliant heavily on competition and, and doing the competitive aspect of brass banding and how you could claim that the American version of that is either, you know, competitive high school marching band or drum corps international kind of having that hmm. uh, with DCI being an all brass, you know, ensemble being competitive or marching bands being competitive and kind of. But there was a, a period of time where that that uh brass band and you're right we, we were a brass band society probably from i'm going to say around the 1840s 1850s especially during the civil war and then after but then um woodwind started to sneak in a uh, matter of fact um in researching prior his father sam prior takes flack in the 1870s early 1880s because he's added a piccolo to the band yeah. <laughs> All right. 
But I think what really pushed us away from being a brass band society was uh, Pat Gilmore yeah. and putting together his basically concept of a wind band uh, 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 and having it be a competition basically to a, a symphony orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I think once that started, you started to see more and more um, concert bands progress. And then Sousa came and, you know, all the rest. And that just blossomed where we got away from just an all brass and uh, band. And then the school band movement started in the 20s. Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, Drum and Bugle Corps um, Drum and Bugle Corps basically grew up in, uh, I believe it was around World War One. Drum and mm-hmm. Bugle Corps started to evolve. I believe some of them evolved out of the fife and drum corps of the 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, and, and other ones were similar to the British tradition where companies were creating brass bands to kind of keep their workers out of trouble at night. They were kind of doing that here with some drum corps with like yeah. Boy Scout, Boy Scout troops, and and certain oh, things, trying trying to create kind of a recreational ensemble. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But then we went to become a concert band society more than uh, a brass band. And now we're coming back. There's a lot more brass bands. I remember twenty eight years ago, twenty nine years ago, in the state of New Jersey, there might have been three brass bands. Mm-hmm. Now I there's quite a lot more just in the whole area. I mean, they've, they've really, um, uh, it, the movement has been taking off. Yeah. Yeah. I know Steve, Stephen plays in a British style brass band here in Virginia. And we think it's, I, at least I find it interesting that we have that, you know, resurgence of the British style brass band tradition, exactly what you just said, the growing interest in that style. And it helps with like Kevin Stees and at Madison and, yeah. and Georgia and, you know, some of the collegiate ones happening, but then Brass Band of Battle Creek, you know, it's kind of popularizing it with the the strengthening position of NABA, you know, being able to promote brass bands. But then at the same time, my doctoral research has identified about 65 current uh, early American brass bands existing kind of parallel to that too. So while there's this growing or resurgence or whatever we want to call it of British style brass bands in the U S there is still that, that pocket of the, the early tradition existing oh, at the absolutely. same time. Absolutely. Yeah. Pryor's father put together a, a Pryor's cornet band. Mm. Right. I mean, that was in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, yeah. even before that, now about the same time he put together Pryor's ladies cornet brass band. Mm. <laughs> That was all uh, his wife played. Matter of fact, a little known fact is Pryor was influenced by his mother playing the valve trombone. No, oh, wow. uh-huh. that's cool. Yeah. Was so, she, did she previously play something before that? Do you know? Or? We don't know, uh, but there is, he, he makes a comment in one article I found saying that he was influenced by his mother playing the trombone. And I, I take that to mean because the valve trombone was being used um in that earlier time yeah for sure and that's and it would have been because his father put together this all ladies brass band mm-hmm. they didn't play that you've got to realize back in the 1890s women weren't even playing that they were more piano mm-hmm. and for whatever reason they, and then some women took up brass instruments and it just wasn't accepted you you couldn't get you know you couldn't get a, in a regular organization, but there were female players. Edna White, the great trumpet player, she um, she was uh, very active, recorded in the early days, played mm. uh, solos with Pryor's and Sousa's band, but was never an active member. Mm. Again, you know, you got to look at the day, you got to look at the time and, and what things happened. Um, Sousa's on the road. It's very hard for him to have a mixed uh, group, and it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't uh, accepted at that time. It's yeah, accepted now. Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. good point. Thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us today. We really appreciate it, and we're looking forward to having you on again. Um, where can people go to find out more? Uh, you know about the research you've done, your collecting, and your store. Where's Where's a good place to point people well, to for that? The big thing is that the store website is dylanmusic.com. All right. You normally can get a hold of me if you have questions or anything. Steve at dylanmusic.com. 
Um, I do have the Fife Museum online, but you know, if you need me, you can get directly a hold of me. I mean, I'm more than happy to answer questions or anything like with anything on that for anything historical. Um, I always have been like that, helping people out with this. Mm-hmm. Although it's gotten a lot easier because there's a lot more research that has been done. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a lot more out there with the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, we can't thank you enough again, Steve Dillon, for coming onto the show. We are excited for, for our future discussions and we hope you have a safe weekend and a nice holiday season. You do the same. Thank you so much. All have right, a great thank day. You. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yeah, you too. You Take too. care. Bye. Bye. Thank you again so much to Steve Dillon for coming onto the Early American Brass Band Podcast. It's really cool getting to hear some of those stories about some of the early brass musicians of the 20th and late 19th century. And we unfortunately had to cut the interview a little bit short uh, for the sake of time. But really awesome thing about that is that we already have planned future conversations and discussions that we're going to be having with Steve Dillon. So look forward to seeing Steve on the show again in the future. Yeah, we can't wait to have him back on. Uh, there's a lot more we can go into with a lot of things. Uh, you know, I'm sure you got the sense during the episode. Um, yeah, so we're, we're very excited to have him back on in the future. Um, as always, there are show notes for this episode up on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com, along with a bunch of resources up there. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, follow us on social media, and you can send us an email at eabb.podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys, so uh, feel free to reach out with any questions, suggestions, anything like that. It's always great to hear from listeners. This episode's featured album is the album that Steve mentioned in the episode that was the duet between Arthur Pryor and Joseph Alessi. Released in 2011, Slide Partners is 100 Years of American Trombone Virtuosity. It's really unique, very cool album to hear these two legends from different generations playing at the same time. So we hope that you go on over to our show notes and find links to where you can purchase and listen to the album. Again, that's Slide Partners by Arthur Pryor and Joseph Alessi. Thank you again for tuning into the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We will look forward to sharing more stories with you in the future and look forward for you to tune in to our future episodes. Take care. Bye-bye.